The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. You're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As large parts of the world, including Ireland, begin to move on from a year and a half of dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, huge questions remain about how well different countries managed the challenge. Why did infection and hospitalisation and excess mortality differ so widely from country to country? How much of this was due to demographic or geographic or cultural factors and how much to the quality of political leadership? And how much to the capacity of public health systems and the administrative state to react quickly and in the right way? And as COVID starts to become part of history, what can we learn through comparing it with the many other mass disasters that have befallen the human race over many millennia? These and other questions are addressed in Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe, the latest book from Scottish-American historian Neil Ferguson, who joined me last week from his home in Northern California on the day before Dominic Cummings spoke publicly about the UK government's disastrous performance last year. Neil Ferguson, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. Doom, it's panoramic, it's a sweeping overview of death, destruction, cataclysm, um, the uh, the sudden uh, and violent deaths of sometimes tens of millions of people over generations, decades, centuries and millennia. But I think the most important thing I have to ask you first is you seem to have got the title from Dad's Army. That's true. Uh, I was going to say, as, as you were describing it, in other words, a very cheerful book by Scottish standards. Uh, I think... Uh, there's always been a book called Doom inside me trying to get out because from an early age, I and my friends would quote uh, pri- Private Fraser, Hugh Laurie's character in Dad's Army, at all kinds of inappropriate moments, we're doomed, Captain Mannering, we're doomed. And that phrase really resonated in the west of Scotland where there is a pervasive air of doom and gloom. But we would sort of say, we're doomed when we missed the bus to school or something like that. So I, I think the book has, has got an ironical side to it that might not immediately be obvious in the sense that ultimately our relationship to death is a strange one. We're a bit in denial about it and we're a bit obsessed with it. And we particularly are obsessed with mass doom, mass disaster, because the end of the world is such an interesting idea. And yet when an actual disaster happens, we we, we act shocked and surprised. Uh, so I, I think the point of the book was to try to get to the heart of this ambivalence that we feel towards our own individual mortality and the ultimate prospect of the, the extinction of Homo sapiens himself. Uh, there was an unfortunate tendency towards the end of 2020 for reviews of the year and special TV programmes to keep using this phrase, a year like no other, which apart from not being terribly charming in itself, is is, is clearly wrong. And all these people who talked about, used the word unprecedented and threw it around willy-nilly. I mean, if there's one thing this event wasn't, uh, it wasn't unprecedented. You know, we've had pandemics through throughout human history. And I just wonder... Um, if this sort of willed amnesia of our of our species, and also something else you describe in the book, a sort of blindness 
to potential danger in certain circumstances, a tendency to build cities on uh, continental faults and near to volcanoes and, and things like that. I wonder maybe whether that's as much a feature as it is a bug that, you know, that, that we do this in order not to be immobilized or paralyzed by fear or overcaution. History is a cure for amnesia. We, we are very, very inclined to forget as a species. And uh, you've given a great illustration of that. The rebuilding of cities beside volcanoes is the triumph of hope over experience. When people use the word unprecedented, and journalists love this world, almost as much as the phrase, no stranger to controversy. When they use the word unprecedented, what they mean is, I never really did any history. So I'm basically going on my own lifetime experience. And that really isn't a very large sample size if uh, you compare it to the entirety of recorded history. So the perception that 2020 was a year like no other was essentially based on, on, on an ignorance of history. And not even you don't even have to know ancient history or even medieval history. Actually, the 1950s saw some pandemics that were global in scale and comparable in their impact on, on population. Uh, it's just that we've forgotten about them. I actually was discovering just the other day that there was a really, really severe outbreak of influenza in the UK uh, in 1951. And in terms of excess mortality, its impact was almost exactly the same as 2020. It's true to say that, that uh, 2020 was a year like no other in the last 10 or 20 years. That would be true. Uh, that was a spike of excess mortality that we really hadn't seen uh, for a while. But any, anybody of my mother's generation, and she's 83, had certainly experienced uh, years like that. And 1940 was another terrible year, though for very different reasons. There was the man-made disaster of, of World War II going on then. So I, I think we are perhaps uh, as a feature rather than a bug very, very prone to forget disasters. And that may be because we don't want to dwell on them. Pandemics don't linger in the memory. We don't sort of celebrate them and say, ah, do you remember 10 years ago, what a great, what a great experience that was. No, nobody wants to dwell on the, the miseries of, of pandemics and lockdowns. But the job of the historian is to, to come along like some miserable private Fraser figure and say not only we're doomed, but also, oh, it's very precedented. I remember 1951. <laughs> I, I suppose the, the thing is, you, and you point this out in the book, that pandemics are less about pathogens, although we focus on the pathogens quite rightly because there is, particularly in the modern era, that there's a scientific challenge to be, um, to be addressed. But they're more about, I suppose, the host upon which these parasites feed and survive. So in your case, and you've written about this before, but you very much apply these questions here, is the question of human networks and how, how they work, both both in terms of the, the transmissibility of the disease and indeed the transmissibility of information, be that information good or bad. Yeah, that's right. The, the last book I wrote was called The Square and the Tower, and it was an attempt to educate myself and history readers generally about network science. We use the word network a lot, and we're aware that we're in social networks, but most of us really don't understand how those work, and we certainly have no clue about their structure. This is an incredibly interesting field. It's interdisciplinary. It brings together physicists and mathematicians and all kinds of 
clever people. And I really enjoyed getting to know some of them. And they taught me a lot, which proved very useful in 2020. For example, there's a brilliant physicist named Laszlo Barabasi, who's really the kind of king of network scientists, who has a textbook on networks, very nerdy, wonkish book, but it has a chapter on pandemics, which says very clearly, there are two things you need to know. You need to know about the pathogen. You need to know about the virus or whatever it is that's that's spreading through the population. And you need to know the social network structure because that will tell you how far and how fast it will spread. And that's as important. So most of us tend to focus on the pathogen and we don't realize that it really, really is crucial that, for example, uh, SARS-CoV-2, this new virus that appeared in Wuhan in late 2019, was able to travel the world thanks to the network of, uh, of long-haul flights that were connecting Wuhan to, and here we can use the word, an unprecedented number of cities. Wuhan had really not been a connected city for most of its history. Uh, But by 2019, you could fly direct to multiple cities, including London, uh, Paris, uh, Rome, I think, uh, Moscow, and uh, New York and San Francisco, to name the major Western cities. And of course, there were many more connections to Asian cities. That's what the first big and crucial observation that it didn't matter how far away from Wuhan you were in terms of geography. If there was a direct flight, you were very close to it indeed. And the other point is that once this virus arrived somewhere, it could spread very, very rapidly if, just to give an example, somebody on that flight decided to go out for a few drinks uh, the night of uh, his or her arrival and then maybe go to church the next day. And this introduces the concept of super spreaders, those people who are very gregarious uh, and uh, are very infectious. And these people played an absolutely crucial role in 2020 because this particular virus has what's known as a low dispersion factor, which means a relatively small number of people do most of the spreading. It's maybe 20% of infected people do 80% of the spreading. So the social structure really matters at this point because a society in which the super spreaders can really gad about and meet a lot of people in a small number of, of days is a society that's going to get very rapidly infected by this particular virus. And in, at the start of the book, actually, I think you describe yourself slightly tongue-in-cheek as a potential super spreader yourself because you were jetting around all over the world from the United States to Asia to Europe and back to the United States again in the, the weeks of late January to, to late February. Well, it's a bit of a confession in the sense that when I look back on it, my life was crazy to begin with. It was clear to me that I was traveling far too much, but there's a, there's a certain addictive quality to to the lecture circuit and the conference circuit, and FOMO will get you on that plane, uh, whether it's to Davos or to a conference uh, in Hong Kong. So I was zooming around madly, not zooming in the online sense, but zooming in the sense that I was on a long-haul flight every three or four days. And I told this story to illustrate a couple of points. One human frailty. I suspected that I was ill by about mid-January. I'd been to East Asia right at the beginning, and I developed a dreadful cough uh, around the time of the World Economic Forum, which was in the middle of January. But did I immediately quarantine myself? Did I go to a remote uh, Swiss village and and lock the doors? No, I kept traveling because I didn't really want to contemplate the possibility that I had this particular disease and that I might be spreading it. And it took me weeks to come out of that denial and recognize that 
I really had to, to stop traveling. So I think that that's part of the reason I tell the story. But the other part is to illustrate the fact that you couldn't find out in the United States in, in early 2020 whether or not you did have uh, COVID-19, because there was no testing whatsoever, even on the Stanford campus, which is as fancy a campus as it, as it gets. There was just no ability to test because the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had completely screwed up testing. Now, the, the key to success against COVID was knowing who has it. And countries like Taiwan and, and South Korea very, very quickly ramped up their t- testing capability, very quickly. I mean, within weeks of the news becoming clear that there was a, there was a new and contagious respiratory disease. And we completely failed to do that. Almost in every Western country, we flunked it. So I'll never know if I had COVID-19 at the beginning, because by the time there was testing capacity, the likelihood that it would have detected uh, antibodies would have been so low as for it not to be worth doing. In fact, I did get tested, but by the time I got tested, it was it was long over. I suspect I probably didn't because I never lost my sense of taste and smell. It may just have been boring old flu or something else. But it's important for us all to recognize that there is this cognitive disconnect. We don't quite want to face it. When a disaster strikes, we sing uh, like British soldiers in the First World War, the bells of hell go ting-a-ling-a-ling for you, but not for me. You're kind of watching other people get sick, but you have this strange sense that you'll be okay. And it's that sort of thinking that causes a, a respiratory disease to spread because people don't really want to accept that the bells of hell might be going ting-a-ling-a-ling for them. I mean, let's talk then in relation to one of the things I've found fascinating over the last year or so. And sometimes I think it's seen as a as bad taste to be so fascinated by it because we're talking about real lives and real deaths. But it's how different systems, how effectively different systems in different countries, different governments, uh, different societies have responded to this challenge. And you mentioned how well Taiwan and, and South Korea have done so. And, and I suppose, relatively speaking, how badly the majority of countries in the West um, have done so in in comparison to that. It's a kind of a, it, it's almost like sitting an exam uh, in some ways. And I know that there are lots of different factors that can play into that, including things like how families live together, density of population, demographic if a population is older, all those kinds of things can have an effect. But the performance of the administrative state and the government still remains quite central to all this, doesn't it? It does. And that's why the subtitle of this book is The Politics of Catastrophe. This is a book about all the disasters I could think of, all the disasters in history. And it brings together natural and man-made disasters. And some people will say, but but that makes no sense. Why are you doing pandemics and wars? Uh, And the answer is that although the origin of a pandemic is clearly in some new pathogen and the origin of a war is in some blundering group of of diplomats, in, in the end, it's politics that determines how big the excess mortality is in both cases. We know that countries could have done much better in the face of COVID-19 because a few did. There was a way to deal with this, but you had to be really quick on the draw with testing and then contact tracing and then effectively quarantining uh, or isolating infected or suspected infected individuals. And very, very few countries in the West did this, most dithered around and by March, had to resort to the extraordinary blunt instrument of, of lockdowns. So the argument I make is that that illustrates how important politics it is, even in a natural disaster. And this is not an idea that I came up with all by myself. 
the great uh, Nobel Prize winning economist Amartya Sen long ago made the argument, and it's one that will resonate with an Irish audience, that famines are not, in fact, natural disasters, that, that famines are man-made disasters, and they happen uh, perhaps originally because of a, of a crop failure, uh, but, but it's ultimately decision-making uh, both by economic agents and by politicians and administrators that de decides how big the excess mortality will be. And so I have a chapter that addresses this specific point showing that, that Sen was broadly right, uh, that you, you will get worse outcomes in undemocratic systems uh, where, and also in systems where even in relatively accountable representative governments, there's still a, a tendency to leave the market to sort out the problem rather than intervening in, in a significant way. So famines are a great example that, that even natural disasters are political. And the point of doom is to say, well, if that's true of famines, shouldn't it be true of all disasters? And, and why then are democracies which seem to be good at famines bad at pandemics, or certainly were very bad at, at this pandemic? That's one of the puzzles that really got me excited because I'd known about Sen's work for many years. It's very well known in the field of economic history. But I hadn't fully thought through the point that there's no special feature of famine that should make you know, democracies good at one form of disaster, but not at others. And then you look at wars and you realize that in some ways in the 20th century, huge wars happened, the most disastrous events in human history in many ways, and the democracies did not do a great job of avoiding them. Ultimately, the First and the Second World War happened because parliamentary governments in the UK totally failed to deter the Germans from taking a mad strategic gamble. So that's really a very important theme of, of doom. And I think it applies at all scales because a really big disaster like World War II and a smallish disaster like the sinking of the Titanic, although they might seem to belong in different domains, actually have certain common features. And the thing I'm most proud of about the book is the, the bold attempt to, to relate smaller disasters, but famous disasters like the Titanic, to this broader theory of disaster. Because I think like, like Tolstoy's happy families, all disasters are, are the same at root. There's a sort of similarity to the way that disasters happen. And in each case, there's some kind of political or use the word administrative failure that explains why excess mortality is really high in some places and not in others. I mean, that's all fascinating. And I'll come back to a couple of those questions, but just your your point about famines interests me both in the book and in terms of what you're saying there. Now, you, you write about a number of famines, including the famine in Bengal in 1943, which when Churchill at the outset was pretty unsympathetic to the idea of providing providing relief there, although relief was was finally brought, but many, many people died. Um, the Irish famine, which you mentioned, and uh, Trevelyan, who's still a, a figure um, a much hated figure in Ireland, almost two centuries after after those events, and his and a combined, I suppose, ideology of uh, a commitment to to the idea that the free market would win, but also perhaps a sort of providential Protestantism that saw this as tending in what he would have seen as the correct social direction for Ireland to go. And then, um, most recently, Stalin and the Ukraine, the two famines, and particularly the one in the 1930s. In, in each sense, in, in each of those cases, it seems to me, they're all on a spectrum of some sort, where it's a combination of uh, the natural disaster itself, 
the failure of the administrative state to provide, perhaps it's under, you know, under-resourced or just not geared to do so, and some form of ideology. That's right. This was a difficult chapter to write, not least because the events are so harrowing, but I thought it would make sense to bring together uh, the worst famines of, of modern times and uh, to to show that, that the political systems make a pretty big difference, much as as Amartya Sen suggested, the Ukrainian famine looks like the really extreme case, just in terms of the percentage of the, the population that that died. It was an even higher percentage than in the case of uh, of the Irish potato famine, uh, if if you relate the the death toll to the population of Ireland and, and Ukraine. Uh, but I also talk about the Bengal famines, the, the two actually, the uh, the the one early in the history of, of British India, and then the one during the Second World War that you refer to, and um, and Mao's uh, famine, the one caused by the Great Leap Forward, as well as the Ethiopian famine that, of the 1980s that that became famous partly because of uh, of Bob Geldof and, and and Live Aid. And when you put those together, the first thing that hits you is that a significant number of those famines happen under uh, communist regimes. The three of them. So the Soviets uh, and the, the the Chinese and the Ethiopian famine are happening under uh, strict one-party rule with an ideological uh, motivation that actually intends to increase the body count. So they're they're in a very different category. There's also an important difference, which is there is no market mechanism to fail there because they're not market economies. The Irish case is is challenging because. We have such a tremendously fraught collective memory of it. Uh, the Irish memory of it is, and indeed the Irish-American memory of it, is as the kind of Victorian Holocaust. And uh, the British memory of it is, as far as possible, uh, you know, amnesia-influenced. But you certainly don't get the same emphasis on the Irish experience in, in British historiography. The problem for the Sen argument is that it's not quite right that this was an undemocratic regime by the standards of the day. It was a system with that was representative, and the Irish did have representation in, in Parliament. And that wasn't insignificant because they they certainly articulated uh they articulated the, the nature of the crisis. When one dwell, delves into parliamentary debates um and gets away from some familiar selective quotations, you realize that people were were aware of uh, the nature of the calamity that was unfolding. And even such a hate figure as Sir Charles Wood, if you read the whole speech that he he gave on the subject, uh, seems to me to be remarkably well aware of what was going wrong. Now, the standard answer is that because they were prisoners of a a radical free market ideology, the, the kind of classical liberalism of, of the day, uh, they felt they could do nothing. But it's not true that they did nothing. They, they did quite a bit, but just not enough. So I think the interesting case, the interesting story with the Irish famine is that when you, when you delve into it, it's, it's not that they wanted large-scale death in Ireland. It's that they did not do enough to avert it. That's different from Stalin, because Stalin wanted to break the so-called Kulak class and the Ukrainians as a national minority, and not only 
the Ukrainians, but also the Kazakhs, and therefore willed the famine to be uh, to be bad. And I think the same kind of pattern is there in the Chinese and Ethiopian cases. Uh, the, the, the other cases that are problematic, particularly from a British point of view, are the, the, the two Bengal famines. And again, I think the literature gives uh, at least some respite for, let's just focus on the later one, Winston Churchill. Churchill said a lot of very callous things uh, because he he certainly was no friend to the uh, the uh, proponents of Indian independence. But in the end, given the constraints of the war economy, uh, there was a response and an attempt to mitigate the the famine. And and indeed, when you dig del- delve into the literature, you realise that a lot of what was going wrong in Bengal really didn't have that much to do with London. It was a function of uh, of poor governance, not just at the imperial level, not just at the level of the British government in India, but the, but at the, the local level of, of officials in Bengal. Uh, I actually ran the draft of this chapter past Amartya Sen and learned a good deal by doing that. Ultimately, the deaths in Bengal were very, very concentrated in a specific part of the country. And you can't really credibly say this was Winston Churchill's fault. It'd be much more plausible to say it was a failure of governance at the at the regional level. And by that time, that governance was not exclusively being uh, carried out by British officials because there was significant uh, Indian representation in, in the uh, civil service in, in India by the 1940s. At any event, this is a long and too long answer. My aim in the book was to try to take Amartya's idea that it's it's politics that explains the outcome and show that that's right. But when you take the big famines in history, each one has a very distinctive uh, political uh, quality. And one big takeaway is that it's too easy to blame the man at the top. That The idea that it's Churchill who's to blame for a famine in Bengal is, I think, a naive reading of the role that the British Prime Minister was playing during World War II. The same is true of most disasters. It's not necessarily the person at the top who's really making the fateful decisions and the fateful mistakes. And and that brings us um, very smoothly um, to Donald Trump and the American situation. And I think I, while reading your book, I've I've also been reading Michael Lewis's new book about the pandemic also. And he, coming from a very different perspective and a very different style of writing, in some way, I think, aligns with, with, with your view, I think, correctly pointing out that you can't ascribe failures to, to one man, which is what the, the media tends to do a lot of the time. And uh, pointing out, as you do, really serious shortcomings in what was supposed to be the best system in the world to deal with this threat when it arose. And I think perhaps he has slightly different analysis of why those why those problems were there. He talks about the American system, the, the CDC and all the rest of it, having been increasingly politicized since the since the 1970s. And I think he also argues that there's been an underinvestment as well um, due to the, I suppose, the prevailing ideology of the last 30 or 40 years. But I think it's fair to say that both of you do agree that something has gone seriously wrong with American governance. And then I would add to that, that the striking thing about the United States is that unlike almost anywhere else, uh, COVID has become a, a bipartisan cleavage, uh, a sort of an illustration of the polarization of contemporary American politics. It didn't need to be this way, and it hasn't always been this way. I think that's that's the way I would think about this. The, 
the 1950s CDC was a pretty effective institution and, and, and yet a smaller institution. The temptation to pin the blame on Trump was irresistible for journalists who already had nursed uh, a loathing of him from the very minute that he began his campaign for the presidency in 2015. Uh, and Jim Fallows exemplifies this tendency. He wrote a piece for The Atlantic in which he he compared being president to flying a light aircraft. And so if something goes wrong, it's pilot error. And I remember reading that piece and thinking, if you really seriously think being president of the United States is like is like flying a light aircraft, you, you really need to have your license revoked either for flying the aircraft or or for or for writing because that was a terrible analogy. In truth, the president is sits atop of dozens. I mean, more than sixty different federal agencies, of which at least five had some responsibility for pandemic preparedness. And if you think Donald Trump or any other president is sat there in the Oval Office saying, "Tell me how it's going with test kits," <laughs> you don't know what it's like, even remotely like to be president. In truth, the president is is completely cut off from the decision makers. Uh, at the level of the Department of Health and Human Services, he's got a bunch of advisors. As it happens, they were deeply divided on how seriously to take the pandemic. And some of them were were quite right that there needed to be early action, uh, but they were out, outvoted by those who feared the economic and political consequences of early action. But that's not really why excess mortality happened on the scale that it did. The reasons for that are firstly the failure of testing, secondly, the utter failure to exploit technology for contact tracing, and thirdly, the total ineffectiveness of any kind of quarantining or isolating of sick people. And that that's really not in the president's domain. CDC utterly failed with testing, as we mentioned before. The big tech companies shrugged their shoulders and basically decided not to bother with contact tracing because I guess because their lawyers said there was too much downside risk, which is bizarre when you consider that the US has the biggest technology companies in the world, but somehow we couldn't do what the Taiwanese and South Koreans could do and make a contact tracing app generally available. And then the failures to protect the vulnerable and isolate the infected, those occurred at the state level from New York all the way to California. So I think we need to stop telling ourselves in the United States, that if only someone else had been president, there wouldn't have been 600,000 deaths. That's a total delusion. Whoever was president, the institutions of public health in the United States would have done badly. And you touched on a really important point that I've become fascinated by. On paper, the United States was the best prepared country for this kind of public health emergency. It ranked number one in a 2019 survey uh, that was published by the Economist Intelligence Unit. And the World Health Organization also said that the United States was top of the, the class in terms of, of preparedness. On paper, it was. I mean, there were all numbers of any number of pandemic preparedness plans. It's just that none of it worked. And I think figuring out why none of it worked is part of what motivates me and, and Michael Lewis. My approach is a slightly different one from his. My, my approach is a historian's approach. And, to, uh, and my question is, why are these pathologies of bureaucracy so widespread? Because it's not just the public health failure. There was failure when Katrina struck. Uh, there was failure in financial regulation when the financial crisis struck. Did the American federal government do a good job of 9-11? I mean, you look at the disasters of the last 20 years, and you'll find the same pathologies in each case. Lots and lots of bureaucrats writing ass-covering memoranda and, and plans, 
But when the, the crisis happens, a tremendously cumbersome, sluggish response that often arrives at exactly the wrong conclusion. I think that's a pattern that has been going on for some time. And it's, it's relatively novel because I don't think this was true of the federal government in the 1950s. I'm not sure it was true in the 1980s either. It feels like something that's happened in, let us say, the post-Cold War period. For whatever reason, this bloated entity called the administrative state, which does not want for resources, is really quite bad at doing what it's supposed to do. And I don't think it's unique to the United States because the same bizarre fiasco plays out in the UK too, where there's a perfectly uh, well-set-up pandemic preparedness plan, as it seems. There are experts, very high-level people, sitting there on committees to advise the government, and they get it completely wrong, as Dominic Cummings has been lamenting uh, on Twitter and will lament to, uh, this week in front of uh, in front of a parliamentary committee. So I, I think there's a general problem. It doesn't just apply to public health. It doesn't just apply to the United States. And it's not the same problem as the problem of populist leadership, because these problems also occurred in countries that did not have populist presidents or prime ministers. So what does that derive from? This may be a difficult question. Is it to do with the increased complexity of the systems, the societies themselves, the technology, the the levels of education, the challenges of getting anything done because anything now has set 10 different levels that it probably didn't have in 1957? And also, is it something to do perhaps that back in 1957, people, including the administrative state, were more sanguine about the idea that there were going to be a certain number of deaths, that that was part of the mix, a sort of an acceptance of that in the post-war years in the way that we don't have now. There's no doubt that the generation of the 1950s had a different attitude towards uh, something like a pandemic because they, they had experienced such problems of infectious disease quite a bit. Influenza pandemics had been a feature of life, not, not just since 1918-19, but recurrently uh, through the 30s and into the 50s. They also had polio. It was a time when the memory of World War II was fresh, not to mention in the United States, the Korean War. I think the public, therefore, was somewhat hardier and more accepting that life threw these curveballs at you. But I think the really important point is that the, the institutions of, of government in the 1950s were smaller in the sense of personnel, and they had a different culture. Many of the people who were responding to the 1957-58 Asian flu had been in government in the war. And wartime government was a very different beast not least because during the war, people had had to learn new ways of doing things, to react rapidly, to adapt new technologies as swiftly as possible. We've lost that nimbleness. And I think we've lost that nimbleness partly because we've just grown remote from really big challenges like, like a world war. But I think we've also lost it because of a, of a new ethos, a new culture of safety. Now, the culture of safety, which emanates partly from law schools and uh, partly from corporations facing class action lawsuits is at all times to, to, to regulate in advance of anything that might be costly. And you don't really attach probabilities. You just try to cover every eventuality. 
anyone listening will know what this is like if they've recently dealt with a lawyer. You'll, you'll end up with a very long document covering every possible eventuality, as it seems. And by a certain point, the document becomes so long that you just give up reading it. And the same basic problem arises if you are you know, trying to uh, deal with uh, getting a mortgage. The documentation is so voluminous that you simply can't read it all. I think that's how pandemic preparedness plans have evolved. And um, I think that's that's the pathology that I'm I'm closely closing in on here. In a book called The Great Degeneration, which is about 10 years ago now, I tried to argue that something was going wrong with uh, the administrative state, that it was becoming dysfunctional even as it grew larger. And I think the, the key, the perfect example of this is the pandemic preparedness plans of pre-2020, because they gave the illusion of preparedness. They satisfied the bureaucratic imperative that they covered everybody's ass, or so it seemed. But when, uh, when, uh, the, when the uh, undersecretary, I think he was undersecretary or maybe deputy secretary of, of preparedness, Robert Cadlett gave a lecture in 2018 he said, if we don't have an effective insurance policy against a pandemic, we'll be SOL if one happens. I didn't know what SOL stood for. So it turns out to stand for shit out of luck, American military sort of parlance. So they knew, they knew that it was all kind of BS. They knew that these plans were really not worth the PDFs they were saved on. And that seems to me to illustrate the general point that you can do your you can do your job in many a bureaucratic agency as long as you produce enough verbiage to give the impression that you've covered every eventuality. But what you're really trying to cover is your ass. And it worked. I mean, in the sense that most people buy the story that it was all Trump's fault, which public health officials told the New York Times time and again last year. As, and the New York Times credulously printed these stories, not asking why so many officials were ready to brief in this way. That's, that's the crux of the matter. And as I said, I don't think it's unique to the United States, but the United States has the resources to have the problem on a very large scale. And another element that's that's not unique to the United States, but we definitely saw there, particularly in places like New York, is the fact that this disease disproportionately, hugely disproportionately, affects people over a certain age. And that that meant that when it got into nursing homes, and care homes by one way or another, it ran rampant. And that's where a huge amount of the deaths that took place took place. And there's been criticism, and I'm sure there are many inquiries to come. It happened in Ireland, uh, it happened in the UK, and it happened in parts of the United States. And you use a word which I hadn't come across before, and we were talking about genocide earlier, and that is senicide. Maybe you could explain what, what, what senicide is, and do you think it's a, a useful term? I had not come across the term before, but I was casting around asking how to describe the way in which people in elderly care homes all over the Western world were needlessly exposed to a virus that was known to be uh, deadly to the elderly. And I came up with senicide because it turned out to exist. It hadn't been used very much, but it was out there. Uh, and it was out there because anthropologists in the 19th and 20th century had come across tribes around the world in different inaccessible places that would bump off the elderly once they became 
unable to look after themselves, hence senicide. Now, senicide is a remarkable illustration of, of generational conflict in action. And the fact that most civilized countries don't do it explains why we hardly ever use the term. But interestingly enough, the great uh, anti-Keynesian economist Friedrich Hayek predicted in his book, The Constitution of Liberty, that at at some point the welfare state uh, would become so burdensome on the young that they would uh, be tempted to carry out senicide, or at least to put the elderly, as he described it, in, in concentration camps, which hasn't happened. Actually, what's happened is quite the opposite. Uh, the young have tended to have their interests sacrificed to the to the in, the interests of the elderly. COVID was a kind of exception to this rule because of the failure to protect the people in the elderly care homes, which accounted for a really large proportion of the mortality in most Western countries. I mean, in the in the range of thirty to forty percent of the the deaths in twenty twenty, in a, a sample of European and, and North American countries. So, senicide interests me because. It's the thing that's most outrageous, really, about our COVID response. And what's fascinating is it happened in so many different places. The same thing seems to have happened in New York State as happened in England. People were sent from hospitals back to elderly care homes, presumably carrying the virus, and nothing was done to screen the people working at the elderly care homes who who must have been carrying the virus. And so we ended up with this very, very significant number of deaths in those institutions, that's senicide. And, um, and I'm doing my, my best to resuscitate the term because we need to give it a name to capture what was perhaps the single biggest policy failure of 2020. Um, one of the things that strikes me about, <laughs> about this maybe having been a year like no other, uh, having disparaged that phrase earlier, is that it is the first example of an economic lockdown in the form that we, we've seen it. And one of the things that seems clear to me, I'm not sure what you think about it, is that that is purely a function of our modern age. It couldn't have happened even, probably even 15 years ago, much less 20 or 30 years ago. So it was a it was a card that governments could play um, and then back it up with massive, you know, economic supports to to people who were, who were temporary furloughed and those types of things. But lots of people like yourself and myself were able to continue at work. Uh, most white collar jobs continued. Without lockdown, do you think we would have had a reaction like in 1957? Or would we have had that nightmare scenario of the NHS collapsing in Britain, the disease ripping through the population, a a much, much, much more serious outcome? What do you think would have happened? I think by the time we'd missed the opportunities of January and February to test and and to trace, to isolate, uh, and also let's not forget to control travel, because the simplest of measures was just to restrict travel from infected areas right away. By the time we'd done none of that and got into mid-March, we had to do something drastic or we would have ended up with much larger numbers of, of dead. Not as large, I think, as Neil Ferguson predicted, because Ferguson predicted 2.2 million American deaths, half a million British deaths. That, that was, I think, uh, to exaggerate the risks because that made it sound like 1918-19. And it was already clear by March of last year that it wasn't going to be that bad, particularly because of the disproportionate impact on the elderly and the modest impact on the young, but also because if you figured out the infection fatality rate, it didn't look like it was going to be 
as high as Ferguson assumed, which was 0.9% of all the infected dying. So I think we would have had more deaths if we had done no lockdowns, but not as many as Ferguson. It's funny that he had a very similar name to mine. I should just clarify that I'm not him. I'm not, he, he's N-E-I-L, the anglicized spelling. I have the, the, the Gaelic spelling, which the Irish mispronounce as Nile, but it's the same name. Well, so we I'm, pronounce it as Nile. Let's, put, let's agree on that. I, I, I mispronounce it. I have this on the authority of the professor of Celtic languages at Oxford, and he's Welsh, so neutral in the dispute. Anyway, uh, Ferguson's proje- projections, I think, were on the high side because people would not have just carried on as normal without lockdowns. We know from Austin Goolsby and John Cochran's work in the US that people adapted their behavior well before they were told to. Uh, And of course they did. I mean, people aren't entirely stupid. When they see a new and infectious disease is spreading, people dial back their mobility. So I think we wouldn't have had such large numbers as Ferguson anticipated, but we would have had larger numbers. So we had to do something. I think the lockdowns of March in some places were very, very blunt instruments with lots of unnecessary restrictions. The example that I like to give is that California closed its public parks and beaches. That was really stupid because there was almost no spread of the disease outdoors. That was already clear from the Chinese data. So you were actually locking people in their homes and depriving them of the right to get fresh air. That was one of many pointless restrictions. So that's, that's the broad story. The counterfactual is not, we should just have let it rip. And Dominic Cummings is right about that. By the middle of March in the UK, there had to be some pretty drastic measures, or there would have been a significant number of more deaths. But you're also right to say that we had an option that didn't exist before of locking people in their homes and saying, carry on working. I mean, in medieval times, periodically, people would be locked in their homes during plagues, And so there is a precedent for that. But there's no precedent for saying to people, you're going to stay in your homes until we have a vaccine. Remember, that's what Ferguson recommended. And carry on working. And if you can't work, we'll just cut you a check. That's novel. And it's not something we could have done in the past, because as you rightly say, even 15 or 20 years ago, and certainly in the 1950s, you couldn't tell people to work from home. Hardly anybody could. I mean, not everybody had a telephone line in the 1950s, never mind the internet. So I think that's what's interesting about our disaster. It's not one of the world's worst pandemics. It is not one of the big ones. But in terms of its economic impact, it is. And that's because of the lockdowns, which were a suboptimal policy response that you know we stumbled into because we'd blown the opportunity to handle this in a smart way in January and February. And was the opportunity, once the original sin had been committed back in uh, back in February of 2020, was the stable door irreversibly um, opened at that point? Uh, because there's been quite a heated debate here in Ireland, albeit we're a small country on an island, which does have a land border, but has a certain amount of potential for controlling, you know, travel in and out of the country, that we could have done a really hard lockdown, clamp down a community transmission, uh, track down everything, clear the disease and been a European New Zealand. Uh, and there's a lot of toing and froing as to whether that was doable. I'm guessing you don't think that would have been doable in the United States anyway. Well, it would have been incredibly difficult. You'd have had to take much, much earlier action on international travel than was politically possible. I mean, remember, Trump had the right instinct, which was to stop the flights from China, but he was about two weeks too late. And he was pilloried for it and accused by the New York Times and the Washington Post, etc., of being actuated by racism. It was one of the few things he was right about, actually. But I think, looking back, most of the research shows that 
almost nobody was quick enough with travel restrictions to make a difference. Uh, you know, the, the, the cases of a very rapid response, Taiwan and, and South Korea, New Zealand, uh, really have no counterparts in the Western world. Now, that, that's partly because the Taiwanese and the South Koreans had understood the lessons of SARS and MERS. They knew that a really infectious coronavirus would require very rapid action. And the New Zealanders copied the Taiwanese. Uh, so there was a kind of learning there that public health officials in the Western world had missed. Somehow we were ready for another influenza pandemic. We were not ready for a novel coronavirus. So that was a sin of omission that I think we can we can quite precisely identify. I don't think the counterfactuals of uh, cutting Ireland off from the world are especially plausible, though I'm seeing this from the distance of of many thousands of miles, because I think we had all got accustomed to levels of mobility as a part and parcel of being European, uh, as well as being globalized, that almost nobody was ready suddenly to stop. So there's no, not really anybody that you can point to who was saying, shut the airports in January with, with a few exceptions, Nassim Taleb and Yanir Baryam and Joe Norman wrote a paper right back at the beginning saying, you have to drastically restrict travel now. And I remember uh, coming across that paper and referencing it in, a, in an article for the Sunday Times. But the thing is, nobody else was saying this. There was almost nobody in any that I'm aware of in any sort of public health debate on either side of the Atlantic was taking that argument seriously. It was right, but it wasn't, it wasn't politically viable. Certainly not in January. Can we? We're coming to the end of our conversation, but can we lift our head and look towards two potential impending catastrophes, which you touch on on the book? One, of course, is the climate crisis and climate change. And you're you're quite disparaging about your trip to Davos, which you mentioned earlier, and the fact that everybody there was talking about the the medium to long term challenge, as you described it, of of climate change, as compared to the impending almost upon almost upon us crisis, which which COVID uh, threatened. Um, and then the other one, which you talk about as being quite you know quite close, maybe next year or the year after, you say that this kind of this could blow up in our faces, is the uh, the Cold War with China, which you say we're already in the midst of. Uh, when I say we, I mean the West, the West in general, and something which could turn into a hot war, you say possibly as well, with all kinds of unimaginably awful consequences. Well, I take the threat of climate change very seriously, and uh, I think it's right to say that the probability of the worst case scenario from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has gone up. Uh, it's gone up just in the years since Paris. But I don't think that's the only disastrous scenario we should be thinking about. And the problem that I have is the myopia that comes when you only really talk about climate change. That was happening at the World Economic Forum in January 2020. To my frustration, nobody really seemed aware of the fact that we were uh, hurtling towards a pandemic, that it had already begun. And so I think we need to, to avoid that Davos syndrome of, of having an agenda that is skewed towards one of the risks to the exclusion of the others. Their global risk report had as its top four or five risks only climate-related risks, and it hadn't mentioned a pandemic in its global risks since 2008. So that tells you that the elite had really taken its eye off a very fast-moving ball. 
because climate change is a slow moving thing compared with compared with a novel pathogen. I think there are other risks out there uh, that we need to spend more time on. Of course, the risk of a worse pandemic is real, uh, but but history loves to play tricks on you, just as you think you've figured out how to be ready for the next pandemic. Something completely different happens. And that's one reason that I talk about the US-China relationship at the end of the book, because war is a great killer. It's second only to pandemics when it comes to mass death. And my sense is that we're underestimating the risk of a really big war in the world today. And that could happen soon. It's, it's almost like all the ingredients are in place. You've got a flashpoint, Taiwan. You've got two very heavily armed superpowers. You've got commitments that are clearly incompatible. And you've got domestic pressures that increase the probability of, of escalation. So I'm, I'm trying to remind people that the ways in which people got killed prematurely in the 20th century were predominantly war and totalitarianism. Those were the, the, the main causes of large-scale premature death. And we still have a totalitarian regime, and it's actually even more powerful, at least in economic and technological terms, than the Soviet Union was. This is the kind of thing that I think Doom is, is trying to, to tell people. Just because you're fascinated by an apocalyptic climate disaster, and it's a fascinating idea, doesn't mean that that's the disaster you're going to get. Probably you'll get something else. And I haven't even mentioned the scenario in which volcanic activity in the world goes back to its high levels of the past. We've had a really quiet 200 years in terms of volcanic activity. A few really big volcanoes, and you're back to talking about the problem of global cooling. Nobody nobody really thinks seriously about this uh, because we've got used to small volcanoes that are kind of picturesque, interesting, maybe disrupt flights over Iceland, but a big one, that would be a complete game changer. And we haven't really seen a big one since Tambora in 1815. On that Cassandra-like note, we shall leave it there. On <laughs> a happy cross. We're doomed. We're doomed, as, as Private Fraser would have said. So it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Hugh. And Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe is published by Alan Lane. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan. We're going to be back very soon, but do remember that you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. You're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan.